0: Welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for this episode, Christopher Rose. Quarantine, as an invention of man, is the most primitive and universal instrument of defense against contagious disease epidemics. So begins our book, for today's episode, Germs at Bay, Politics, Public Health, and American Quarantine, published in 2021 by Prager, an imprint of ABC Clio Press. My guest today, Charles Vidick, is a consultant and advisor on public health and bioterrorism issues and was appointed as a visiting scientist at the Harvard School of Public Health, working for 10 years on national quarantine policy. His book is a fascinating look at quarantine's history in the United States, including some surprising lessons on how the early American Republic depended on quarantine for its safekeeping and how the institution may well have played a decisive role in the Revolutionary War. Here's my conversation with him. All right. Charles Bittig, welcome to the New Books Network. Well, thank you. Uh, our traditional first question is about you uh, so so tell me a little bit more about your personal uh, and and academic and professional background and how you got interested in in the history of medicine um, if there were any key moments important mentors or advisors and and what led you in the direction of writing uh, germs at bay
1: well, thank you for that question. Uh, there were a variety of factors that led me to write this book. Probably the most ex- significant was the um, role I played in the anthrax response in 2001 and 2002, where I was oh. actually the uh, incident commander for the Unified Incident Command for the U.S. government in responding to the anthrax crisis that we had uh, caused by those uh, bioterrorism events. Um, in that uh, fall of 2001, now that that led me w- through the work I was uh, doing for the Unified Incident Command, and I was actually an employee of the Postal Service, and I had um, managing environmental programs and emergency response programs for the Postal Service. So my background fit uh, into this issue. Uh, because I've done a lot of emergency response work across the country for the Postal Service. Um, But as a result of that work, um, and I had a degree uh, from Harvard in city planning back in the 70s, but I I was asked to come to Harvard to talk about what I was doing. They heard about my work, and one thing led to another, and they suggested, well, you know, you may want to think about coming to Harvard, And um, I convinced the vice president of the Postal Service uh, to let me go on a leave uh, to do that. Um, And so I got a degree in environmental health from the Harvard School of Public Health and then spent 10 years at Harvard working on this uh, issue of quarantine um, with other uh, fellow Uh, graduate students, uh, some who are now in the uh, CDC uh, and uh, others that were, uh, one was a uh, doctor-physician, a a combination which is relatively rare, uh, uh, and both of those individuals and myself worked on quarantine strategies uh, for at least a year. But then I continued to do this work at Harvard for about 10 years, uh, specifically uh, working for the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative, uh, where I did uh, presentations to Harvard classes on various topics uh, that they may be having, but focused on the issue of quarantine and its relevance uh, to the 21st century. Um, that was one a big angle on it. But I will say my mother had a PhD in medical sociology, and I do feel that I should give some credit to her for um, keeping my interest in uh, the issues of medical sociology. So th- those were, you know, probably two formative uh, parts of it. You know, my mother's interest and her influence upon me and, uh, you know, just the uh, Emergency response work that led me um, to really have a powerful uh, change of you know of my whole career uh, in terms of focusing as I have. I literally spent nearly twenty years working on this book uh, as a result of the, these experiences.
0: Well, and it shows in in the level of detail and also some of the the archival sources that that you've pulled uh, in order to to construct this book. It's it, it's it's very well detailed, um, and we're going to get into some of that material here a bit later on in the in the interview. Um, I want to start by by, by uh, doing something that's usually very dangerous with an academic, which is quoting them to themselves, but. In your introduction, you state that quarantine as an invention of man is the most primitive and universal instrument of defense against contagious disease epidemics, but one that has played a central role not only in the survival of our species, but specifically in the survival of the colonial and post-colonial United States. Um, But despite this, it's usually given a short shrift by historians, um, and I have to sort of raise my hand here and say guilty, Um, and I might add uh, also by politicians in the media. So tell us a little bit more about your approach to this study of quarantine and why you're arguing that it's important for us to reconsider it and to understand it on a deeper level.
1: Well, I I think it's uh, a very, um, well, it's... (laughs) It has a lot of intellectual baggage, as I mentioned in the book, uh, in that uh, it has been maligned for uh, time out of mind, if you want to say it that way, uh, because of Mm -hmm. the many abuses that have occurred to quarantine. Uh, But one of the things that drove me to look at it more closely was that there were very few studies or analyses that were done to look at where it actually did work and where it did have some, uh, the right constituents were present to make the quarantine concept work without the uh, the downsides, the abuses, uh, the tortures and the other things that did go on uh, from time to time. And it really it's almost like a it's like a chemical formula unless all of the ingredients are exactly well constituted in the right proportions. um, The concept of quarantine may not work properly. And one of the things that I found, particularly in Boston, was that one of the keys to the uh, effective use of quarantine was the democratic process. When an Mm. authoritarian approach was applied, uh, it immediately led to fight or flight types of responses. But to the extent that Boston, uh, which is really the leader in America in practicing quarantine, uh, made it work, they made it work by involving through the representative town meeting uh, the constituents who are going to be affected. And so historically, where quarantine worked most effectively was when the townspeople recognized in a unanimous fashion that quarantine could be applied, but they also would pull the plug when they thought it had gone too far. And this is one of the most remarkable experiments in quarantine history, which has gotten short shrift, really, Uh, When you look at uh, what's happened across America uh, in the use of quarantine, Uh, and I go into that in the book, particularly in the case of comparing it to the city of Philadelphia, where they took an exactly opposite approach, where it was a top-down governor-mandated strategy, and the governor never had an interest in um, applying quarantine um, because it was antithetical with commercial interests so mm-hmm. uh, that was the distinction uh, between philadelphia and uh, boston that one was a democratically driven approach to public health uh, and in the really one of the key players in that process at least in one period of uh, boston history was paul revere Somebody who really, who has been associated with the midnight ride uh, to uh-huh. uh, from Boston to uh, uh, Lexington to let everyone know the, uh, the Redcoats were coming. Well, his role as the president of the uh, Boston Public uh, Health uh, um, Department at that time, it wasn't called department, but his role there was critical. And he represented... Um, a charismatic individual who could both appeal to business interests because he was a silversmith and at the same time appeal to the common man. And it was something of that order, that charisma, and yet also connected to democracy that made a quarantine work. He actually, in his only about two or three year period of time, implemented more quarantines Um, In any other period in the 19th century, uh, that one individual, uh, Paul Revere, really uh, stands out as like, I call him the white knight of of quarantine. Mm -hmm. He he played a role which was just exceptional. And when you see this, you begin to realize that there are some keys to how quarantine can work. But the keys to how to make it work seem to have been lost in the archives of history and one of the roles I felt that this book should have is to let people see what it takes for that kind of uh, community consensus building, which Paul Revere was so good at.
0: Uh, well, let's let's turn to that then, because the you, you, you have quite a bit uh, in in the first few chapters uh, about how uh, pre revolutionary and the Revolutionary War. Um, formed a turning point in the use of quarantine in america and of course paul revere whom you've just described as as being one of the most influential people to to uh call for the use of quarantine is is very well known for his role and brief but memorable role in in the revolutionary war um and as you've argued this is the first breakdown in the use of island quarantines in boston Harbor. And it also saw the emergence of a public health role for medical professionals. So uh, walk us through the importance of this period um, for, for public health and quarantine in American history.
1: Yes, the American Revolution actually turned out to be a turning point in the use of quarantine in America. Uh, in for a variety of unusual reasons, uh, the port bill uh was imposed upon the uh, city uh, the town of Boston uh and that bill required uh all commerce to go to Salem Massachusetts rather than Boston because they were going to punish the bostonians for their acts of the boston tea party and other uh rebellions that they had taken place uh as a result of that uh the british came in um and established really a uh, embargo of all trade to Boston. Nothing could come in by land, by by sea, and in doing so, they also closed down the quarantine islands uh, of Boston Harbor, uh, which had traditionally been managed by the city, the town of Boston. Uh, that action, in doing that, came at a very unusual time many people don't realize that the emergence of the uh, American Revolution was happening simultaneously with the emergence of the smallpox uh, epidemic in the Boston area. And in fact, mm-hmm. uh, the British soldiers themselves were uh, considered the uh, the source of where that uh, disease came. And it is not coincidental that they had uh, actually closed down the Boston quarantine system, and in doing so, there was nobody to control the health of the incoming British soldiers because it became a military um, uh, you know, uh, quarantine, in essence, what they were coming in to do. So the result was that uh, the entire uh, public health infrastructure of Boston had been subsumed to the uh, military interests of Uh, the British government in the form of uh, General Gage, who who was the first to take command uh, and and basically to uh, uh, take over for the governorship of the uh, Commonwealth at the time, or the Massachusetts Bay, as it was called. Uh, That setting, as a result of uh, the island uh, being taken out of commission, the emergence of the disease What happened between basically 1774 and 1776 in March, when the British were finally uh, pushed out of Boston Harbor, was that the disease became so um, infectious and spread so wildly that basically... uh, hundreds and hundreds of people were dying in Boston who were in uh, a quarantine established it was a military quarantine and a uh, medical quarantine all at the same time when that happened um, the uh, the actual during this period of time the british uh, were seeing that the hostages that they'd maintained in Boston uh, were becoming a liability for them because they had to feed these people. They had to uh, keep them warm during the winter. Mm-hmm. And so they started to let them be um, discharged uh, through the ferry system that uh, went over to um, uh, Chelsea. They were uh, it was basically the strategy was to get them uh, into the hands of the uh, American rebels and let those uh people who they infected with smallpox then become a liability to uh, uh, General Washington's uh, military command, Uh, that uh, was really one of the most amazing uh, discoveries that I found in doing this book, uh, that there really was bioterrorism going on in Boston during the beginning of the American Revolution. all of this is important in understanding quarantine because, uh, first of all, what happened was that there was uh, multiple levels of quarantine going on. One was General Washington quarantined the British in Boston itself because Boston really, for those who don't know, is virtually, was virtually an island. It's an isthmus It had a very narrow connection to the mainland of only maybe 100 yards, and on a high tide that 100 yards could disappear uh, into nothing, and so there was only one little small gate that controlled who came in and who came out of Boston, uh, because it had a very narrow connection to the mainland. Uh, In that way, it was easy to control the British in that area, Um, and it also One of the things that happened, of course, is that the the British were uh, running out of uh, support systems. Their logistics were not there because the Americans were uh, uh, intercepting all of their ships coming from England and getting their resources uh, so that uh, really General Howe, who took over after Gage, uh, had to leave. And when he left um, in March of 1776... He basically left a wasteland uh, wasteland of a city. um, And and the people who were left were basically very much infected with smallpox. Uh, Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why this is important is because after the war, and that's not the end of the war, but after they left Boston, the, um, the city spent about four or five months from like July till September of that year, trying to control smallpox, and what they did is they created quarantines within this uh, town of Boston uh, to deal with it. This was the first time in the history of Boston where quarantines were applied on a citywide or townwide scale. They had never had the situation. It was only forced by the dint of war. and in doing that, What it did was, uh, for some of the surgeons who were there, um, there was the belief that uh, quarantine was better handled not by island isolation, but by having a more humanitarian approach, uh, where you could have more connection with uh, physicians and family, and yet have home quarantine strategies applied, Uh, This was a major change in uh, quarantine policy in the history of uh, the Massachusetts Bay. Uh, And in doing it, it really began with the physicians saying, we need to be able to treat them here. We can't put them out on the islands. First of all, uh, the island that was being used at the time, Rainsford Island, had been totally dismantled by the British. Uh, So even if they wanted to use it, they couldn't. But because of these accidents of of, of war, uh, it led to a reassessment of how to apply quarantine. Um, And it began changing the nature of quarantine from an island exclusion strategy uh, to one where the medical physicians began to emphasize the need for a a home, uh, home isolation strategy, or even hospital-based strategy within the city or within the town of Boston. That was a revolutionary concept. And it did take a number of years before the Massachusetts General Hospital was um, founded in 1811. Uh, but there were no hospitals in early... Uh, New England, other than what were called pest houses, where you would put people uh, who uh, perhaps in the hinterlands would go to a pest house. But in Boston area, which is basically the Massachusetts Bay, people would be sent to the islands because it was the only politically acceptable location where everyone could agree uh, that no one's going to be uh, affected by the communicable disease. Uh, But that whole breakdown of thinking uh, was largely uh, created by the American Revolution uh, in Boston. That experience um, that forced them to be more humanitarian in their approach. How could you put a hundred, you know, say a couple thousand people out on an island that only has like 10 acres? Uh, It just wasn't going to work. So it became very clear uh, some reassessment was needed. So that gives you at least a sense of, you know, how that Revolutionary War was like the first seed of change to quarantine principles.
0: Yeah, um, and and you've raised a couple of good points here, and and um, they're particularly pressing it in my mind because I literally just covered this in in my class on the history of medicine this week. Um, I had my students read a description of a a lazaretto one of these uh, island quarantine stations uh, from the 16th century and you know they very much came to the conclusion that this is not a place for treatment this was a place where you sent people so that you didn't have to deal with them um but also oh, um the sites of treatment of course the the overwhelming uh, preference was for treatment at home and and hospitals were places for poor people um and that was very very slow to change and you sort of hit on both of those uh here and you you also sort of examined the emergence of of these so-called inoculation hospitals and their role in sort of domesticating the management of smallpox which again um your your book does focus quite a bit on Boston and Boston was another one Boston was a leader in this process as well. So how did these inoculation hospitals change uh, the practice of quarantine?
1: Well, uh, the inoculation hospital concept really um, came out of the uh, uh, work. uh, Zabedale Boylston first began inoculation at the uh, suggestion of uh, Cotton Mather, Uh, in the epidemic of uh, smallpox epidemic of 1721, uh, as I go into the book, uh, there was a a great deal of conflict about this idea that inoculation would actually be something useful. Uh, Many people were objecting to it because it was a form of, uh, they thought, of murder uh it was extremely uh uh controversial topic and yet he felt anointed practically speaking uh to go forward because he had the ministry of boston and at those days the ministry of boston was like uh uh, more sacrosanct than any group uh, one can possibly imagine, um, and, and even though the doctors, for the most part, with the exception of uh, Doctor Boylston and maybe one other, uh, were really uh, very conservative and questioned the value of inoculation.
0: Um, can I can I can I yeah. just ask a clarifying yeah. question here? Uh, what we're calling inoculation at this point is the procedure uh that is referred to as variolation this is not the jenner vaccine yet
1: no it's not the jenner vaccine this was actually taking the actual smallpox itself and inserting it into the skin uh with a lancet uh, and, mm-hmm. and in this regard it is like playing with fire because it wasn't uh when you're dealing with the uh Uh, Jenner's vaccine. Jenner's vaccine was dealing with something which was not smallpox, but created an immunity that was substantially similar to what getting it in a natural way from smallpox would do. Uh, And in that regard, it was, you know, it's amazing that anyone would do it. But I think the key thing to understand is that inoculation um, was really uh, looked at For some people, it's like, well, look, we'll try anything because, you know, the uh, 30 percent of the people died who got smallpox. And it left such gruesome, uh, you know, uh, disfigurement of people who got it that people were much more inclined to take risks uh, because what they what they saw the outcome was either death Or a disfigurement, and it was really a uh, a thing where people were willing to take risks in a way that you might not take with uh, other diseases like COVID-19. So, in any case, what was most interesting was that none of this had the uh, endorsement of state, uh, of common, uh, the Massachusetts Bay government or the uh, town government, Uh, and as a result. The uh, the first time this uh, became more institutionalized where inoculation hospitals became, call it domesticated, uh, was in 1730 when the next epidemic occurred. And at that point, the town of Boston actually created orders that required doctors uh, to follow specific procedures um, in doing this under the control and authority of the government. So this represented the first regulation of physicians in America, really. Uh, That Mm. law was the first in American history that established roles and rules uh, for physicians, and they could not violate them or they would be sanctioned. Uh, That was a very important thing. And the thing that made it important was by allowing to have inoculation hospitals or even houses where that could occur, Um, institutionalized the idea that it was acceptable to have people who had smallpox, but under very specific conditions controlled by a physician, um, to be allowed within one's community. Um, Up until that point in time, uh, essentially all people who had smallpox uh, were uh, taken to island quarantine locations uh, and kept as far away as possible from any other individuals. In fact, the the rule used to be you had to be four rods or about 66 feet away from anybody who had smallpox if you took the rules of that time and people followed them. Not that they did, but uh, th- there were very strict rules about staying away from smallpox-infected individuals. And the most effective approach that the community took for literally hundreds of years was uh, the use of various island isolation locations. And and even in the beginning, Mm -hmm. there were no hospitals on those islands. Uh, They were just places where you were allowed to survive or die. Uh, So anyway, the, the, the main point is that by bringing uh, inoculation hospitals within the confines of the community, having a quarantine role for the physician, for the person undergoing the inoculation, uh, allowed for a much more humanitarian approach to things, which uh, you could almost say became the mirror for allowing later on uh, isolation hospitals that were eventually allowed to be developed later on in the 19th century. So it was mm-hmm. the beginning, it was a forerunner of thinking more uh, about the humanitarian side of things, about the health of the individual and about trying to have a more positive role for the physician.
0: The, uh, the role of immigration and quarantine um moving forward a bit, uh, have been intimately related over the history of, of the United States as well. Um, and the, these were originally, uh, locally overseen and then moved to state management and then to federal management, um, both of the quarantine and, and immigration gradually over the, the 19th century. Um, but, uh, they were managed very differently uh, quarantine and immigration for much of the 19th century, but, but uh, eventually came to be combined into one program in the early 20th. Um, so, so why did that happen? Uh, let me rephrase that. So why did that happen? <laughs> and, and and who, who benefited from it?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a, a major part of what the book uh, is about. Uh, the, The whole history of immigration in America was a local operation for many hundreds of years. Um, The federal government, of course, did not exist until we had, you know, uh, divorced ourselves from the British after the American Revolution. So anything before the American Revolution was all local um, activity. And and that that period of time uh, basically uh, was run by the Massachusetts Bay Colony and by the uh, the town of Boston. So immigration in that regard was really a question of uh, driven by the Puritan ethic. At, in the early phases, it was driven by if you were a Puritan and came to Boston, you're welcome with open arms. But if you were a Quaker... Mm-hmm. If you were from the Scott descent or Irish descent or any other part of the the world, of which there were about 130 130 other countries that did business with Boston during that period, uh, those people uh, had to be sponsored uh, and they had to have some kind of a bond to cover themselves uh, so that uh, they did not become a, a ward of the state or of the colony. And so there were very, very strict laws to keep uh, people who were not of one's kind. In this case, the Puritan group that really uh, ran Boston. Um, And so that whole early period was driven by exclusion of those who were not of one's own religious makeup. Uh, That lasted Uh until 1686, when basically the British. Uh, uh, throughout the original charter for the, uh, the Governor Winthrop's uh, Puritan uh, congregation, um, and uh, that's when the Anglican Church and others came in, and it became more open in terms of the types of people that were there. And in fact, in that period, uh, from uh, the beginning of Boston, 1630, all the way to 1686. Um, Quarantines were uh, established by uh, the governor of uh, the Massachusetts Bay in 1647. Governor Winthrop had a two-year quarantine. Um, And basically, um, during that period of time, I mean, it was like a six-week to eight-week trip from Boston to England and maybe another equal number of uh, days back. So you could not manage... uh, quarantines from a distant empire uh, headquarters in London, England. Uh, It all had Uh to be local. Uh, But by 1700, um, the British, uh, when uh, the Massachusetts Bay put in their first law in 1699, uh, the British objected to it because they thought it was counter to the interests of the uh, uh, commercial interests of the uh, uh, British empire and they uh, basically allowed it to go through after about 2 years of negotiation uh in which they neutered it uh because it had no enforcement authority uh, so they that was a major change in in how immigration was controlled and and the quarantine was controlled uh because the british were were not going to be uh, allowing their colonies uh, to be uh, setting the policies for the empire. And, and this is very interesting because the English n- never had quarantine laws until about 1711. Um, and yet, here it is the, uh, 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 the Massachusetts Bay being the first colony in America to have a law in 1699. Uh, you can see there was a complete difference of opinion. Uh, on the um, policies both for immigration and quarantine between the the British Empire and the Massachusetts colonies. Uh, And it's instructive to note that the rest of the American colonies that were primarily Anglican in their orientation had far less emphasis on quarantine laws than Massachusetts did. In fact, if you look at the number of laws passed in the 17th, I guess that would be the uh, 1700s, uh, two-thirds, roughly I think it's about two-thirds of all the laws on quarantine passed in that period from all the colonies were all passed in Massachusetts. It was there, an enormous focus on this sense of uh, uh, keeping out the unwanted, uh, and Boston uh, played a role far more than others um, in this, uh, and there are a variety of reasons for it. But as you fast forward into the uh, um, 19th century, the uh, the states began to play more of a role than the local governments. Um, And uh, in Boston, it still maintained a primary role in, in quarantine policy and even in immigration policy. Uh, up until really uh, the eight, late 1800s. In fact, it was a, uh, a U.S. Supreme Court case in 1875 that declared that uh, states have no authority over immigration. Um, it uh-huh. is completely a federal authority, but the most amazing part about it was it took another 20-some years until 1893 when uh, U.S. quarantine immigration policy got Consolidate in a legal sense, uh, but not in a practical sense. It took until 1928 until the federal government actually integrated immigration policy and quarantine policy on the ground as people came into Boston, uh, and Boston was actually the, at the epicenter of this merger of the two uh, of immigration policy and quarantine policy being handled by one agency, Uh, this was a major change because the federal government played really no role in uh, immigration policy. Even after the 1875 Supreme Court case, which is for uh, Chinese exclusion by the California government, even after that 1875 case, it still took, what, 1875 to uh, 1893? for um, the government, the federal government, to actually consolidate its authority using the U.S. Marine and Hospital Service, which is their predecessor to the U- U.S. Uh, Public Health Service, to uh, control immigration as well as uh, uh, quarantine. They became at that point integrated together. So it was a, a long uh, uh, evolutionary uh, Development from a local level to a state level to a federal level until finally the U.S. Public Health Service in 1921 completely took over all quarantine and really uh, immigration controls in this country from a practical point of view. Uh, This was a major uh, transition. And of course, even today, as you probably know, uh, we still have states that are not happy with the federal government's management of immigration and assume that they can go ahead and do things on their own. Um, and of course, anyone can try to do anything they want, as you may know. But uh, in practice, from a legal point of view, the Supreme Court uh, decision of 1875 still holds that it is a federal responsibility when it comes to uh uh, these issues because it's an interstate commerce issue.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's interesting that, uh, th- that this is all finally put in place by, by 1928 because, uh, quarantine is virtually abandoned prior to the second world war. So basically about a sec- a decade later, um, what what happened? What 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 brought about the dissolution of of quarantine, which had been such a an important part of public health and um and immigration for for more than three hundred years of use uh, in in the United States? Yeah,
1: it's it's quite. Uh, I found it amazing myself that when going through the history of quarantine, that all of a sudden, really after World War Two. It was like it just disappeared. Uh, I, and there's a number of things that I think uh, uh, led to this. Of course, one of the major uh, aspects of it is uh, we had a, an enormous shift in 1893 when the federal government authorized the U.S. Public Health Service to begin surveillance of disease, not at the port of arrival, but of the port of departure for vessels coming to America. This was the most radical decision that this government has made, and really um, since the beginning, uh, uh, since its founding, because what it did do is it actually backflushed into the entire European world standards of public health that even Europeans were not very good at. Uh, It forced the uh, European nations... uh, to actually have to inspect their own people, certify that they were healthy before they got on American vessels or any vessels coming to America. This was radical. I mean, if you go back in the history, uh, you'll go back a thousand years, you can go back 10,000 years, Uh, there has never been this idea that you have somebody who uses its diplomatic channels uh, as a vehicle for supporting the public health of the country. Uh, And that in itself, to me, was one of the most radical and most revolutionary concepts that's happened. And in doing so, it meant that when somebody arrived in Boston Harbor or New York Harbor or in San Francisco Bay, those people would be getting a review and inspection, but it would really be a second or third time event in reviewing that individual for their health, because they'd already been reviewed very scrupulously in the country from which they were departing. Uh, that, to me, uh, when I found out that, uh, it was remarkable. But there's another element to it, and a very significant one, was the idea of radio uh, This is the concept that we're going to hold the masters and commanders of these ships, responsible for the health of the people that they come to, when they bring to America. So every ship had to have an uh, onboard physician. And what they did, and the U.S. Public Health Health Services to be commended, they established a system of radio praktik, which means that as you came into the uh, area of America where you could communicate by radio, you could actually call in and indicate if you had any sick people on board if you had done your uh delicing uh because of typhus or you uh, you've actually done your rat eradication and you're up to speed on all of that uh you had sanitized your boat you done fumigation there's a whole series of things that were expected of the port phys- of the uh Uh, ship physician, as well as the master and commander. And if you could uh, vouch and check off all the things you had done, you could do a buy on quarantine. You could just, uh, they took the word of those individuals. And in doing so, it put the burden on disease control, not on the public health service, not on the municipality, and not on hospitals, but on the masters and commanders and their uh, delegated physicians and other assistants uh, to to meet certain standards of sanitation. So sanitation became the major focus uh, during the early 20th century to such an extent that they had fumigation strategies which were so uh, powerful that in some cases they were actually dangerous for those who were actually um, using the uh, fumigation techniques. They used Zyklon B, for example, which is actually the same Uh uh, fumigant that was used during the Nazi's fumigation uh, during the um, uh, extermination uh, campaigns that the Nazis undertook in Auschwitz and other locations. And that all came, for those who don't know, that came from the uh, uh, ship industry. That's where that technology came from. It it came from German science and German uh, chemistry uh, that had been used, uh, uh, you know, and of course it had been misused in other cases as well. But these very powerful tools for the eradication of disease uh, were significant and really eliminating an enormous amount of disease entering America. So it was like a certain period from 1893 to 1933. That period uh, was an enormous focus on sanitation, fumigation, and uh, just bringing vessels in that were spotless as far as disease was concerned. And the result was that uh, uh, we had an unprecedented period of very limited uh, communicable disease in America. So um, to me, I was very surprised. And of course, one of the things that needs to be said, though, was that the Public Health Service uh, was actually a branch of the U.S. Treasury Department. Um, And I think Hmm. it's important to understand that When you have your boss uh, who's in charge of the treasury, uh, commerce may actually have a slightly higher role in how you look at things than public health. And I believe in some respects uh, that influenced the uh, the way things went in the age of aviation because in the age of aviation, uh, the U.S. Public Health Service never uh, kept up with the speed of aviation transport and the number of airports that were emerging. And as a result, uh, in many ways, the one failure that occurred in this period was the failure to deal with mosquito eradication programs um, and the, the vectors that come with that, whether it be malaria, yellow fever, or other things like that. That was the one failure period where the aviation industry became so powerful uh, and the federal government acquiesced um, uh, to it. But it happened in a time, coincidentally, where the disease overall was of a less significant uh, impact on our society. Um, And also there was a thought that the people who traveled by plane were of a better class and therefore, we were not associated with disease of the 19th century. So, they were, um, it was a politically arrived at kind of decision that uh, they got to buy in a certain respect. So, in any case, that is why we are where we are with basically our hands tied behind our back uh, in the 21st century with the use of quarantine, because we've really failed to keep some of these. Uh, disease control systems of which there's a whole portfolio of them uh, that existed. Uh, they were, are reinventing it here now in this new era, you know, dealing with SARS and then COVID-19. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, one of the interesting things you bring up in the book is that there uh, the U.S. Public Health Service had a top secret code, that it used to keep its communications uh with uh quarantine stations private uh while there was uh an an epidemic or or a suspected epidemic event um, Tell us a little more about that <laughs> that was one of the great discoveries i've got to tell you that i
1: I, I was um... I had a very hard time getting a copy of this code book. There's actually only two that still exist. In fact, only one existed when I started my research. But by a few coincidences, the person who had this book was a former student of my father. My father's a professor of sociology and anthropology. So by by sheer chance, uh, having that connection, he went out of his way. He's really the librarian for the National Institute of Mental National Institute of Health. Uh, and so he is basically the archivist for all of the, uh, uh, the major documents of the federal government when it comes to public health. And I finally got a copy of the document because I knew that there was something missing when I started going through the archives in Washington and finding certain code words, uh, that were being used for various diseases like cholera or smallpox. In those words, um, no one could figure out what they meant. I couldn't figure out what they meant until I found a telegram that had uh, been transcribed where certain acronyms were being expelled out that EPDM or something to that effect meant smallpox. And there was a whole book uh, on all of these terms And and in fact, I I I started to find a whole host of telegrams in the archives in Washington from the early 1900s that uh, the U.S. Public Health Service used to communicate between its quarantine stations and its headquarters and the uh, uh, Surgeon General. Uh, Basically, the whole idea behind the code system was that any time a communicable disease was found, it was highly controversial, and um, anybody who might know about it, particularly the media, newspapers, uh, would grab these this information to be a front page story immediately if there was any case of cholera or smallpox. And so, in order to uh, make sure that the uh, media, the newspapers, and others uh, did not know what was going on in a uh, any given telegraph office, uh, they created this code book in which uh, you'd have these innocuous sounding uh, sentences, uh, but including certain words that made no sense whatsoever. Uh, and they'd go back and forth between the uh, the surgeon general and the uh, a uh, surgeon in any given quarantine station like Boston, New York, or San Francisco, explaining that we need to deal with EPDM or some other acronym that nobody knew. Um, and when I found the book and I went through the code book, uh, you know, I finally was able to convince them to give me a copy. I said, my God, uh, what was going on really was there were a lot of cases where a disease was just emerging and they were able to nip it in the bud without anybody knowing that there was a very serious case of smallpox in the 1930s, uh, when everyone thought smallpox was pretty much uh, out of the picture in Boston. Uh, But if it had been put in the newspaper, it could have been a front page story, and it could have created a a lot of... uh, hoopla in unnecessary attention to an issue which the public health service felt they could manage on their own. So the plus of it was that it allowed for secret uh, control of issues that might not necessarily be in the public's interest. And on the other hand, uh, from a transparency point of view, it obviously was a way to keep the public out of a lot of the day-to-day routines of what the P- public health service was doing across the entire spectrum of America primarily along the coastal uh, eastern coast uh, the south the western coast and the gulf coast where we literally had over 130 uh, quarantine stations during the peak of the uh, US public health services quarantine Uh, network, which was, uh, of course, now we're down to what? Less than uh, roughly about 20 locations, which are all airport-related locations. So we're really, uh, we're just a fraction of the size of what we used to be as far as quarantine system uh, at a federal level. But anyway, the code system was a way to kind of manage the dangers of what the newspapers might do um, if there wasn't somebody uh, you know, there to make sure that uh, th- these issues were being handled properly uh, and not gotten out of control. Because that was the big issue. Uh, the newspaper journalists would often go to the telegraph stations and just sit around uh, waiting for people to come in and out because telegraphs were often thought to be the hottest news. And so in order to avoid this so-called hot news, uh, the code system became uh, a very valuable tool, Uh, something that actually was developed roughly about 1893. And while I haven't nailed it down exactly why it happened, I believe there was some legislative uh, suggestions that it might be a good idea. Um that part is still part of my research, but uh, it is clear it became uh, de facto the policy of the U.S. Surgeon General.
0: So uh, with this book in the pocket, uh, what are you working on now? What's your next project?
1: Well, one of the things that I've, uh, I've been following this COVID-19 um, developments um, over the last Well, I guess we're going almost into two years now. Um, And what I've been looking at is um, the whole history of the use of executive orders as a tool for managing public health. Uh, That's essentially what's happened with the COVID-19. We've had almost, I'd say, a little over 4,000. I can't give you the exact number without going into my computer but about four thousand executive orders issued by all fifty states uh, and territories, including uh, the, you know the uh, Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, uh, which is an un, uh, uh, I guess you could say it's we 've never had uh, executive orders used as a means of control of epidemics in American history as we have with this particular pandemic. Um, And Uh there are a lot of issues that it raises in terms of the effectiveness of how executive orders are used or abused. um, And just the sheer number of them, Uh, I can I can tell you that even The New York Times and all the reporters that I've uh, been looking at on this issue have not chronicled this aspect of it. They do. They give you a, a daily count of who requires vaccination or requires masks and this and that, and it's a constantly changing game. And of course, I've done this deep dive on all of those issues and tracked exactly how these are changing from uh, uh, state to state and, uh, and for what reasons are they creating exemptions for masks or exemptions for vaccines. Uh, It's a vast amount of information, and obviously the project will not end until the (laughs) pandemic ends, but uh, it's the first time in American history where executive orders have been uh, used to manage an epidemic. It was never done before, not in 1917, uh, not in any other previous period, primarily because the concept of an executive order uh, is a relatively new concept. Even though it's been around for a while, it's only in the post-World War II period where the concept of executive orders at the federal or even the state level uh, came into their own. So that I felt would be a very interesting um, topic to look at um, because it's just the, uh, I mean, let's face it, how many people have actually read any of the executive orders (laughs) <laughs> I mm-hmm. dare say, I dare say, uh, it'd be a rounding area uh, which is closer to zero than to one <laughs> percent. Uh, so you really wonder how effective all of this is. Some of it is, of course, a function of the much more um, uh, complicated legislative structure we have today in American government at the local level, at the state level, than we had in 1920. Uh, We have so many more laws now than we had back then that just maintaining the integrity of that system, you know, with expiration dates here, uh, expiration dates there that have to be uh, by executive order extended. Uh, So there's a a whole host of the executive orders that have nothing to do with pandemic response, but just keeping the machinery of government going. But then there's an enormous amount of it, which is uh, putting out constant changes to policy uh, and then you actually have to ask yourself is anyone actually reading any of this stuff so in any I case that's that's the I'm... project i'm working on right now um the hardest part is just keeping up with all the 50 states in their executive orders but um in my spare time i'm doing it <laughs> yeah.
0: all right uh, the book is Germs at Bay, Politics, Public Health, and American Quarantine. It was published in 2021 by Prager, an imprint of ABC Clio. Charles Vidick, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Well, thank you.